The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number 139 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm Andy Bonello, pinch hitting for George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed in the show are my own and not that of my present or past employers. I'll never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment. And I'll never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. And nothing I say during the show should be construed as legal or financial advice. But before we get started, I want to remind everyone that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news to all leadership and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. We had a great show for you last week. Hope you tuned in. George had a great friend of the show and professor of cybersecurity management from Lynn University in Boca Raton, Florida, Dr. George Antonio on the show. The good doctor talked about the Internet of Things. And I got to tell you, I had to pause as I was listening, though. He reminded us that we are projected to have 25 billion devices in 2021 and 75 billion in 2025. Folks, the Earth's population is only 4.2 billion. I think we forget just how the fourth industrial revolution is expanding. Make sure you're configuring your home routers properly, folks. It's mind-blowing out there. Thanks to Dr. George Antonio for a great episode number 138 of Task Force 7 Radio. So if you missed last week's episode, don't sweat it, folks. We are on at least 11 different playback mediums here at Task Force 7 Radio, and you can find us everywhere. So we have a great show for you this week. We have Chief Research Officer and Strategist of Malicious Streams Incorporated, Mr. Joel Yantz, on the show. Joel's a seasoned cybersecurity executive with more than 25 years of technology and cybersecurity experience, 15 of them as a CISO. He's been named Security Thought Leader by the SANS Institute in 2010. He's an active uh, participant in law enforcement and research communities, is named a contributor to the Verizon, the annual Verizon Data Breach Investigations Report. Joel served in a number of diverse technical roles early in his career before leading large technology and cyber programs for Fortune 500 companies across multiple industries. He's played an active role in some of the largest cyber events in the past decade. He's worked, <clears throat> his work includes takedown of criminal credit card skimming ring, multi, multiple large retailer data breaches, APT-related IP theft cases involving targets in entertainment, chemical, manufacturing, high-tech industries, including multiple high-profile Fortune 100 companies. He's been involved in extortion intrusion cases of sensitive company information and nation-state espionage attacks against the United States power industry. Joel owns Malicious Streams Incorporated, a consulting practice helping global enterprises build holistic and resilient cyber capabilities. Joel combines his deep technical expertise to deliver unique top-to-bottom insight in the cyber practice of his clients. He has helped transform cyber programs with global enterprises in manufacturing, retail, chemical, energy, healthcare, financial industries. And folks, I gotta tell you, he's just a fantastic guy. It's my pleasure to introduce Chief Research Officer and Strategist of Malicious Streams Incorporated, Mr. Joel Yance. Joel, welcome to Task Force 7 Radio. Good morning, Andy. It's good to, uh, good to be here. I appreciate the invite. It's always good to catch up. Uh, I think you and I have crossed paths over the years many times, and it's always good to connect in whatever form and fashion. Yeah, it's great to have you on here tonight. I've been such a fan of yours for a long time, Joel. You're a true professional. You've been in the game for a long time, and you've got a great perspective to share with, with our audience. But before we dig into uh, enterprise cybersecurity programs and your 15 years of being a CISO in the the, the lessons learned and the battle scars from that role. That's like dog years in the CISO role. Um, tell, tell me a little bit about Malicious Streams and how it came about. Um, well, so Malicious Streams came about 
Uh, back in the, the late 2000s, uh, I was a full-time CISO of a Fortune 500 company, and uh, but I've always had a passion for research. And uh, cybersecurity is, is obviously a passion area of mine. So I decided to start a research company on the side. Everyone knew I was doing it. Uh, and, and just do some fundamental research in the space, uh, but I also was able to run some instant response engagements out of it. So it really just was my side project, uh, and it just kept growing over the years, and now um, it's something that I do full-time for the last several years, and I take my experience as a CISO and my, my research uh, interest in areas in cybersecurity and kind of merge them together to help companies in fundamental ways, whether it be you know, establishing a cybersecurity program that, that really solves the core problems or tackle some fundamentally new challenges they're facing. And it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, man, you've had a fun career. I've been, I've been uh, enjoying watching you continue to, to change the game. You know, one of the things that I, I find interesting is, you know, not only are you a savvy executive, but you're, you're very technical and you can, can you know, translate the tech to non-tech. And uh, it, that to me is just a, you know, I love that skill um, and, and it's something that we need more of in the industry. So, um, so, so let's get right into it, man. So, you know, you were CISO for 15 years. Why do some programs, cyber programs, succeed and others fail? You know, that is a great question. And, and unfortunately, I've had the, the opportunity to see a lot failing uh, as I get called into various situations. And, you know, one of the things that I've found that's a common thread is, is the lack of ability to see the problem as, as a whole. Uh, because cybersecurity is one of these areas where it's, it is a competition, but it's not a parallel competition where you're trying to outcompete your market competitors with a new business solution or a new new technical way of, of delivering your services. Rather, it's kind of a head-to-head competition. It's a zero-sum game with, with attackers that wants to exploit your, your network connections, your data, or whatever. And so it changes the dynamics of it where you can lose in a moment of time. And it, what that causes is the need to, in order to be able to see one holistically. If you are seeing 80% of the landscape of you should be solving with your cybersecurity program and you're ignoring the other 20%, that's obviously the area that you're going to get bitten in. So, so I would say the, the, one of the big things is to be able to see holistically. One of the things I like to talk about is oftentimes I'll see programs that are trying to solve things almost like the, the numerator of a fraction, but they don't know what the denominator is. And so yeah. you never know how far you are to being finished. With solving the, that is the holy grail, right? Asset management, inventory, um, you know, the denominator is such a big deal. I mean, I've run, you know, big mature, you know, visibility projects, right? And, and those are so, so foundational to being able to, you know, talk about your program. Um, but right. You know, when you go to the CEO or the CFO and if you don't have the denominator, it's like, well, when's this end? How yeah. much is enough? Right. So yeah, man. So I, I love that, that, that view. Um, but if I was CEO or CFO, you know, what should I be looking for in my, my cyber program and what are those red flags I should be paying attention to? Certainly. And I, I think that dovetails well into the, the second part of why programs fail, but it's the same thing. It's executive engagement. Um, so I, first off, before, before we, I ask what, you know, answer the question of what should the, the CEO be asking, uh, the other key to success in the cyber program is that executive dialogue where you're able to communicate risk up and to get visibility that really connects your cyber program up to the top levels of the company. That's the other big key to, to being successful. And in that dialogue, if you're a top level executive looking at your program and you ask what's the cybersecurity strategy and you get a top 10 list, um, that should be concerning. You should probe a little further because security is, you know, security doesn't stop at 10 and, and number 11 or number 12 or number 13 may be the thing that is very detrimental to your health in the cybersecurity space. And right. so what, what I would think that you would want to see or what I would like to see is a smart way. You can't boil the ocean, but a smart way of looking across again, the entire denominator 
and things that are like a, a risk-based approach to understand where are the areas, where are my challenges, you know, and, and, and the challenges may be a technical capability or it may be a process gap that you have or a capability as we, you know, and I think that one of the other things that would be very important is an adoption of some sort of cybersecurity framework. That's something else you'd want to see. I'm not huge in chasing compliance, but the frameworks, good frameworks do give you the ability to, to, to lay out your space in a logical way where you can communicate your success and how you're approaching your cybersecurity strategy. Yeah. So those are a couple of things I would say. Yeah, and I appreciate the insight. So, you know, we talk a lot about maturity on the show. We've had, you know, different folks come on and talk about measuring risk in terms of financial dollars, cents. Um, you know, we've talked about, uh, you know, effectiveness and simulated cyber attacks. Um, but from your perspective, like, what's it really mean to be mature? And then how is that different from effectiveness? <laughs> that is that is a great question. I, you know, cyber maturity assessments is is a very common buzzword in our industry today. That's how, you know, board members and top level companies always wants to evaluate their cyber program. And in reality, what I've found is, uh, Maturity in its purest sense is telling you how mature you are in executing your defined scope. Because as part of building a security program, you establish a security risk posture, your risk tolerance, uh, and then your approach and what the scope of your program should be, all those things. And then you go about building the program. And if you have policies and you have good processes and repeatable processes and people are executing against those, that is a mature situation. But you may not be removing enough security risk out of the organization. And so the effectiveness of the program, how effective are you at meeting the core security objectives of the company? That's a whole different story to some degree. I've seen at least in one such a scenario where a third party performed a cyber maturity assessment and gave an organization a very high uh, maturity rating. And I can't deny it but they hadn't addressed near, you know, there was large gaps in the, the security risk they had addressed. So they're fundamentally different animals, but you need to look at both of them. And one of the things I find when I'm evaluating a security program is there are so many different dimensions. Maturity is one of them. Effectiveness is another. And there's several others I could keep diving into. But. Yeah, I find that area to be fascinating because, you know, it you know, it, when you're building that program, you know, the first reaction, right, is to, to have a third party come in and assess and benchmark so you know where you are, where you want to build and where you want to, you know, where you want to build to and go. Uh, but at the same time, like for small companies, the maturity assessment, that could be an expensive proposition for folks that already are budget conscious, right? Uh, how are you, how do you, what do you recommend for the small companies who, you know, are, you know, new to building out programs, um, you know, insourcing the self-assessment versus outsourcing self-assessment or an assessment. Um, and then how would you, how would you, what would you tell the CEO of a small company how to tackle that? You know, I think, I think I would start with saying something like adoption of a framework and doing an evaluation about, uh, do you have these capabilities in place? Something like a, a lightweight NIST CSF, for example. Um, I particularly like that framework. Uh, I know it has its shortcomings and its strengths and weaknesses, but it would be a great way to, uh, to get started on this journey because it gives an inventory of capabilities that should be in place in your organization with some description. So I would start at a capability level and say, do I have asset management? Do I have risk management? Do I have detection and go through each of those categories uh, and then you can kind of lay in things that are uh, maybe a pen test and a IR tabletop exercise to look at your effectiveness and between the between those three things I think you could start to get you know a pretty good gauge of where you're at at the moment anyway. So man I gotta ask you what are the keys to staying relevant for a CISO? Uh, you know, this is the one that, that I, I will go ahead and say haunts me. It chases me <laughs> <laughs> because I am determined that I will, I will remain relevant. Uh, and it is a fast moving animal because it, security 
I know we've, we've been trained to say security is, is the language of the business and security is, and all these is on the end of it is these very business oriented, nice things. Um, and that's true that it needs to be communicating that, but security is a technical issue and a process issue. And because exploitation and issues occur at a very fundamental technical level. So if you do not understand those, I don't think you're going to be able to effectively manage or lead a program to address those. Now, yes, you need to, you need to very much understand business context and language of the business and, and macro level business economics. All those things are important, but if you miss that core, then you're going to go into the realm of irrelevance and you're going to be chasing things and spending money. It's not going to be effective. So I think at the very core, uh, I think it's going to be important that you understand the technologies you're trying to secure. Doesn't mean you have to be a programmer or a coder or cloud administrator or architect, but understanding them to a, a deep enough level to where you can have a conversation with one of your, you know, top level engineers and understand what the concepts, maybe not hands on keyboard, understanding the concepts of everything you're doing. So I think keeping up with technical trends uh, is, is a very important piece. And then on the other hand, being a student of your business and understanding the, the mantra of the business, what are the challenges? How are they going to market? What are the strengths and weaknesses? What does it mean to success, succeed in your business? and merge the two together. That's how you stay relevant. Man, it's so true. So before we go to break, I got to ask you one more question. So do you you feel that you can be an effective CISO if you don't understand incident response? Like if you haven't played that in that space at all, um, you know, how hard is it for you to be a CISO if you've never had to deal with that live fire IR before? Oh, man, I was just talking to someone the other day when we were talking about the defining moments in, in a CISO's <laughs> career, and it's always breaches. Oh, my word. How much do you learn during a breach, Andy? Yeah, that's right. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. So I think it, it is really challenging. Uh, I never say never, but it, the things you learn during a breach and, and around instant response and understanding instant response, it's kind of like when we were talking about that zero sum game earlier, it are, it's in those moments when the, the actual risk is realized. Now it may not be a complete attacker. It could be an, you know, a well-meaning uh, employee in your company doing something really not so good. Uh, so it doesn't have to be like some rogue nation state, but regardless understanding what it means. And that's the end of the day, what you're trying to protect against uh, in a majority of time. I think it is a critical factor. I really do. And I could spend more time talking about it, but I know you, you need to get to break right now. Yeah, get the break. All right, folks, we're going to transition to a commercial break here. So, hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio, and you'll be connected to the extended TF7 family on your favorite social media platform. For inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for a topic or guests, please email George directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at tf7, that's with the number seven, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, I promise you. Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause for some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with Chief Research Officer and Strategist of Malicious Streams Incorporated, Mr. Joel Yance. So whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live and communicate in business staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future however pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured understood and managed 
By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community, advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Sinet, S-I-N-E-T. You can't see it. You can't smell it. You can't taste it. But it can bankrupt your company. It's internal risk. Insider fraud, ethics violations, and remote workforce risk have plunged many a company into reputational crisis. Don't be one of them. The corporate investigative team at Bluecoat have managed cybersecurity and risk mitigation in the White House, Silicon Valley, and everywhere in between. To see how Bluecoat can help protect you, visit TrustBlueCoat.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with Chief Research Officer and Strategist of Malicious Dreams Incorporated, Joel Yance. Joel, we ended the last segment, man, talking about IR and the need for CISOs to uh, be battle-tested and, you know, the lessons you learn uh, when security fails and, unfortunately, sometimes your own security, right? But, uh, man... Um, you've got a big IR background. You got certs and incident handling, forensics, big reverse engineer. You know when you're when you're looking at organizations' IR capabilities, what are the biggest or most common gaps in their program that you see? You know that's uh, when I go in and look at an organization, and I'll go ahead and say maybe it's my background, but it, but it plays itself out well. One of the first areas I will look is the incident response area, uh, because the reality is. There are incidents, uh, and, and one of the worst uh, things to hear when you say, tell me about the incidents you've had over the last, you know, X number of days, weeks, or whatever, and you hear, like, none or, or some really low amount, then you're like, oh, uh, that usually means you're not seeing it. Uh, and so w- one of the things that I, I, I see often is this concept of, well, there, the AV software does the detection and it will let us know if there's a problem. Uh, and then I have a contract with somebody that's going to take care of it if it is a problem. Uh, and that's kind of my incident response capability. I may have a document, may not from an incident response plan. And so that lack of understanding of that landscape, and I, you know, that 
is probably the most common thing I see. Now, those are in organizations where they probably are transitioning CISOs, and most CISOs have a, a deeper level understanding than that space. But even then, the value of incident response, I think, and the understanding that bad things happen, and the how quickly you detect and respond if you're able to make, uh, to contain and eradicate that threat before an attacker uh, or whatever is trying to execute the actions, uh, you're going to remove the cyber risk from that, that situation. And so I think that's one of the, the first gaps I see is that misunderstanding. Uh, and then, then it starts in the technology space. And when I think about some of the things that I would expect to see, uh, it is a very challenging uh, to find bad things in your environment. Uh, if, if the organization is any size at all, uh, one of the things, and Andy, I know you've probably heard this, you know, the evidence was right there in their log files all the time. I always feel like that's a cheap shot because do you know how many millions of lines of log files there are distributed across a massive enterprise? Um, so, uh, you know, I, that, I think Ver Veridin had their uh, effectiveness report come out and I think they were saying, uh, I might be off here a percent or two, but I think they were saying alerting was about 9% on average, right? Which means, you know, everybody's taking all the different outputs of their technologies, getting them into a seam platform, Splunk or whatever, and they're not able to get the value out of it. Right. I mean, it's that's scary to think that we're, we're probably in single digits in alerting across the board. Right? I mean, that's that's not going to work. No. And I think that's exactly what I, I, I see. Sim, a lot of SIM implementations are nothing more than denial of service attacks against the incident responders that need to watch it. I mean, they get inundated with junk. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think that one of the big things I see is a lack of first focus on detection. Uh, and that's an area where I mean, a lot of times people treat incident response as a whole. Uh, and and, when I, and what I, I tell folks is we need to divide the problem into two pieces. There's detection and response. And the analogy I always give is if you try to like, if you cut a lemon in half and try to squeeze it, you're only going to get so much juice out of it or so forth because you're looking at it whole. But if you divide that lemon yet again in half and squeeze each half, you get more uh, out of each piece of it. And that's, that's one of the things that you have when you look at instant response as a whole, as opposed to detection and response. So dividing those two and optimizing each piece individually, uh, I find is a very important step. And on that detection space, start to understand how it is that you can get the value out of uh, the, the, these logs that are distributed across your environment and it's technology. There's no way that you can hire enough people to watch every line of code. So, and I'm sure you have, you've seen this as well, but having a smart play in technology to, to automate the extraction of information and reduce this volume and centralize it and then apply people and process to it. That's going to be one of the big areas of focus that I would bring into an organization. And quite frankly, that is one of the, the sciences that seems to be glossed straight over. I don't know if you've had the same experience. Man, you know, we, you know, we talk a lot about, especially with, with seem having data consumption models, you know, pay, pay per terabyte, pay per gig, um, and the amount of data going up and, you know, it gets harder to leverage the dollars, right? So, you know, we've been, you know, always looking at, I think, you know, when I talk to my peers, you know, we, we talk about, you know, can we just have a huge data lake, um, you know, that's, and then strip out of there what we want to route into like a scene product or something like that. Um, you know, and yeah, it, it becomes a real big challenge I, I've, I've seen. So, um, but you, you keyed on something really important, I think, which is the splitting detect and respond function. Right? You can't respond, if you can't shoot it if you can't see it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. right? Exactly. And so, you know, but I think it gets, it gets hard for, for organizations to um, create the visibility they need to be effective. So how, how are you convincing, you know, all the app owners to turn their logs on and, and going through that journey, um, you know, when you're coming in and doing, doing consulting engagements? because. Um, that to me is not just a security function. It's more of like a, a hygiene, you know, duty of care for, for, you know, an application owner or a technology owner, uh, infrastructure owner. So how are you helping companies bridge that gap 
um, you know, to kind of make it not just a security play, but a, a, just an overall IT hygiene play. Oh, that, that is that's a great point. And one of the things that is very clear, and I always try to go find the architects, because the architects are the close kin of the security folks. Those, uh, because when you start thinking about things like scalability, reliability, um, and the, having secure foundations usually means strong foundations built on good, good principles. And so um, partnering with those individuals in the organization so that you can have a combined voice around this is, is an effective capability. And I, I always like to provide what's the value piece to whoever I'm working with in security because security, uh, the days of security Gestapo is, is over really. That does not model, doesn't work. So that partnering with whether you're an internal CISO or consultant like myself, going in and sitting down and having that dialogue and having an honest dialogue about what you're bringing to the table uh, and combining it with this voice of the architect so that you're providing a, a consolidated view that in order for the health of your business functionality and the application that you're delivering, there are core fundamental things, and that is this security space, but also this visibility and repeatability and scalability. And so a lot of this has to do with visibility, uh, and, and the uh, good security practices often entwine with these other core architecture pieces. And I think that's a combined message, I guess, would be my response to that. Yeah. So, so look, there's a, a lot of top right magic quadrant players, right? Uh, in the IR, SOC, monitoring, forensic space. Um, but does, you know, does getting one of them or, you know, acquiring one of them um, equal an IR capability? Uh, absolutely not. Uh, I think that's that I see that quite a bit if you talk about it one of the things I, I hear is organizations will go get a SOC or 24-7 monitoring contract that has a technology piece to it they'll get a forensic retainer and they consider IR done and you really uh, the only hope you have out of that is is that if you have some just low-hanging fruit commodity type malware infections yeah that team will probably be able to handle that uh, you, if there is something really serious that, that is like a, a very loud type of attack that will hit the radar, everything else seems to be opportunistic. The, really the way you should look at IR is turn it around and look at the use cases that you're trying to solve or trying to add visibility to and, and ask yourself some questions like doing a threat profile of your company and say, what are the top threats and how would that be? Uh, leverage against your company or what are the uh, greatest vulnerabilities or what are the areas with the greatest impact and start to look at it from a very logical way. What are the use cases that I'm trying to detect and prevent? And from there, you can add, you can use those use cases to go and make sure you have detections for those things. And then you can play and map it all the way back through response. We really haven't talked about response. The keys to response um, is starts with an instant response plan so that, that you have a consistent way of addressing a specific uh, security risk or incidents that occur in the organization, maybe playbooks for those use cases, and then training uh, with team members that understand response techniques. And so that kind of maps it all the way through and you center those around use cases that are tailored to your organization. That's how you get value. Yes, technology is critical. 24-7 is critical. Having the right people, I find, is the most important ingredient. Yeah. But that's the way you turn things around as opposed to it's not contracts. It's about understanding and building out capabilities in a logical way. So before we dive into some of the, the big th risk threat areas I want to get your opinion on, where do you think AI sits in automating SOC tier one, tier two um, phishing investigations? Where, where's AI going to fit here? So that is a good question. I, I'm a big fan of, of the use of AI, uh, but I'm also a big fan of not overselling it. Uh, so right now, I think that AI can give us some insights that maybe humans aren't going to be able to see. Sometimes there are 
connections that are there that's below the surface that AI is really good at building those patterns of detection. Uh, will it ever be able to beat uh, a really strong analyst that's dialed in and understand the space that they're monitoring? It's going to be a long time before that happens. And so I think it's another tool that, uh, yet another tool that enables the uh, analysts to be more effective what they're doing. It maybe reduces the number of overall analysts, but you're going to have to have that really talented core team. What I always say is, Incident response is, the, is kind of like the last line of defense. You've had all of the techn protective technologies and uh, vulnerability management technologies and protection controls that are in the various phases of cybersecurity. But at the end of the day, if you're dealing with an incident, one or more of those have failed and the last line of defense is that analyst. And for now, I think that trained incident response team sitting in the gap is going to continue to be a, a needed quality. Yeah, for sure, for sure. All right, so Joel, I, I got to ask you, what, what are the biggest areas of risk, you know, large enterprises are facing today? I mean, this, the landscapes are changing, right? What, what's, what's, what are you seeing right now? Oh, certainly. Well, the biggest one has to be all the privacy regulation and PI data. Uh, and and it's, a, it's a pretty big beast. And when you're looking at cybersecurity, there's actually two major categories of risk. There's the actual cyber risk, and then there's regulatory or compliance risk. And they don't have to be the same necessarily. And so what you have in the privacy space is both of those are escalating. Um, used to, when we talked about data security, we could lock away somebody's social security number uh, after we stopped putting it on login forms back in the day. We could lock it away to the business processes where it needed social security number, and there's very few of those actually. And same thing with with credit card numbers, we, it's used for tendering transactions. You can encrypt it and remove it uh, from most applications and systems and throughout your enterprise. But when you start dealing with privacy data, customer data, data, this customer data is power. And one of the things that you got to understand is that in order for an organization to get the value from their customer data, it needs to travel throughout the company. Uh, it, it empowers things like better customer service, better marketing, uh, sales analysis. And, and I could go right down the line. It's so many different departments, so many different systems. So you can't just lock it away. So one of the big challenges is how to allow this information to flow. And oh, by the way, it's collected from multiple data points, not just when you get hired into a company, for example, uh, at new, new, or, new employee orientation. It's collected from multiple places. It's used in multiple systems and it's unstructured. So it doesn't have always fit a very regulated pattern that makes it easily to detect and control. So that makes it a pretty big challenge. You need to have it flow so you can get the value, but protect it. And then you come into privacy reg regulations and you know, you know, you might be shocked, Andy, but there are not all regulations make sense. <laughs> but it's funny, you know, we talk about the, you know, the proliferation of customer data and, um, but it's also happened at the same time where infrastructure is changing, right? And the boundaries are changing, right? So tell me a little bit about, you know, what you're, what you're seeing around adopt, cloud adoption, past SaaS, and then, um, you know, how well are companies doing as they're securing them as they're making that transition from on-prem on to cloud? Yeah, that's, that is a, a great point. And I see that mass adoption in, you know, is this the death of the traditional data center? Maybe for now, uh, but you know how it always comes in cycles. I imagine at some point it may come back, um, but there is a mass exodus out to cloud platforms and there's a lot of value associated with those cloud platforms. But as we've seen our, in so many different areas, we're fast adopting a platform before we figured out some of the, the things like how to secure it properly. And um, I think that is a, uh, a significant area of risk in two different spaces. The platform as a service, there's a lot of bells and whistles and configuration pieces. And, you know, companies like AWS and Microsoft, I mean, I'm sorry, Amazon and Microsoft and I think even Google, they've done a great job of providing some, you know, security services that are available. But at the end of the day, you're one wrong configuration away from exposing uh, some significant data and we've seen a number of data breaches because of it. So it, 
as much as uh, there, it's becoming a science, it is a huge risk. And I see uh, the, the business value of adopting cloud uh, outpacing the spend and focus on the security side of it. And that's the platform side. The software as a service, that's a little bit more Wild West. It actually concerns me a little bit more because it's so easy for uh, large enterprises, for individuals within the company to go out and make uh, departmental level software as a service decisions and pass company data out to an unknown third party. So getting uh, your arms around the, the SaaS models to where security is evaluating and at least putting strong con contractual language in place to protect data uh, is, is another area where security is struggling to catch up uh, because the business values is the consumerization of IT all over again in this fashion. So those are two big areas that we're going to, have to keep our eye on and keep focus on over this, the next several years. What about the uh, SDLC process, right? Containerization, um, you know, applications continue to get more complex. We want to put more power, security power in the hands of the developers too, right? I mean, what's your take there on, you know, on DevOps and containerization? Uh, and another great technology, and I feel like it's, it's enabling us to deliver uh, more robust and interesting and faster solutions. I mean, it's a lot of those great things, but there is on the back end, uh, when you start looking at it, while technology's gotten uh, better at delivering capabilities, it certainly hasn't gotten simpler. It's, we're adding more and more complexity, and now we're adding on top of operating systems, virtualization layers, and container, these containers, and it's getting more and more layers, and it is challenging for uh, any one group to know all the different layers, to know the totality of the solution, going back to architect, for example. Uh, and so one of the things I find is the gap between the technology, the technical engineers and the developers are growing. Uh, and if I, if I lay in a lot of times the understanding of the architects against the developers or engineers, let me not use architects, let me use the word engineers. Um, if, you, if you lay in the two, I'm seeing a growing gap between the two where the understanding of the engineer stops before the developer takes over. So that's an interesting layer that's, a, that's building and we need to focus on it in the security space. But I'd be a fool to say that, you know, this DevOps and this, this approach to delivering technology is not a good thing. It is a good thing. It's a good thing from a, a capability standpoint. And also this concept of DevOps where you're embedding the ability to deliver on the technical pieces of it, the platform pieces of it in with the development cycle so you can have these tight iterations. It's great, um, but it does open up the opportunity from a security, a sec major security issues that we're working to put some, some of our strategic uh, models that we've used in the past around how we secure development doesn't work and we're having to adapt it in these new spaces. Um, yeah, and, let me ask you, Joel, let me talk about the gap in the engineering and the architect back to the developer, but like in general, I mean, are we just, are you really just referencing like a larger skill gap is, and is that, you know, is that the, one of the major risks that we're seeing here too, is it just a skill gap between all the different disciplines? I, I think that is, uh, definitely part of it. And I, having folks that are better trained is actually the easier part of it. Where I was looking at it is if there was if there was a platform operating system layer, and then on top of that was a couple of development layers. We had three or four different layers of technology, but now you have you know containerization layer. You have uh, maybe things like Kubernetes and management of Docker environments, and, and you start building more and more layers, and so. Now suddenly what was three layers, maybe 10 layers, and if the developers know the top four and the engineers and platform people know the bottom four, you got two in the middle that's not being uh, adequately focused on because there hasn't been clear delineation between the roles. That's part of it. The other thing is I've been spending a lot of time making sure that I understand this environment. So I've been doing development myself and things like Angular and some of the new platforms that are used heavily in containerization. And so, for example, 
I, I went to create a new Angular software development pro project. And when you do, there's a couple commands you run and it sets up the development environment. So I ran this command to create a new application and to install the base components to get ready to begin development. Before I ever coded a line of, of code, I went out and looked in these directories that were created. And Andy, I don't know if you spent much time it created 65,000 directories and it was 611 megabytes of code before I started developing. Before you even started banging away. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. That, that code came from parts unknown on the internet. Now I'm a little bit exaggerating there. It came from software repositories, but most people are not going to spend a lot of time saying, where did these individual uh, pieces of code come from and are they safe and are they susceptible to supply chain attack? And is that an avenue of exploitation into my code? And what does all that mean? That again, that's a whole other, we could crack that nut open and spend a lot of time on it. That's a, that's an area of risk that where we're adopting it fast. And there's some good practices where people are caching these repositories local and different things but it's gonna take focus in order to put some good securities around this without killing the value of DevOps. I think that would be the, the ultimate place where I'd love to land that, that piece of the conversation. I love it. All right, folks, we have to take another commercial break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away. We'll be right back with more from our special guest, Chief Research Officer and Strategist of Malicious Streams Incorporated, Mr. Joel Yance. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Sinet, S-I-N-E-T. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, Chief Research Officer and Strategist of Malicious Streams Incorporated, Mr. Joel Yance. Joel, I find it fascinating that 
you own your own company, yeah, you call yourself the chief risk officer and strategist and not the CEO. Uh, Did you that backstory? Oh, sorry, man. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> That's an awesome title, too. <laughs> You've got, it sounds like you got all three. Yes. <laughs> chief yes. research officer and strategist. Yes. Well, I mean, <laughs> there's definitely, we could have a whole conversation about risk, but the research space, honest to goodness, uh, I just love research. And uh, I've always loved research because it's the concept of, of just taking and discovering the new, the new frontiers and just kind of expanding like human understanding. And this goes way back. I was a chemist. Uh, and when I started my college career and thought I was going to be a research chemist. Um, so it's in my roots, but when I found cybersecurity, I found the field that was just ripe with it because there are very few fields that move so fast. Technology moves fast anyway, uh, but security moves even faster than technology in that, you know, the world could be a fine place, uh, you know, and you go away for lunch and you come back and attackers have figured out a fundamental new way of exploiting an issue or so forth. So that fast pace and the, the magnitude of the problem that you're trying to solve, I've heard it said that, you know, the security practitioners have to be uh, right every time as opposed to attacker can only, only has to be right once. I mean, multi-layered security and risk management helps hedge the bets, but it's a, it's a field that's ripe for having the need for fundamental ways of solving problems, not chasing the symptoms, but attacking the very core of it. And part of that is uh, researching and understanding the, 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 the root of attacks and security exploitation. And the other is on researching fundamentally unique ways of protecting and responding to issues. So it's that kind of part of my DNA, but part of it is this field really needs that approach, I feel. Yeah, man, that, that curiosity is the key, right? I mean, you don't, don't have to come from uh, an Ivy League school, you know, to be the best practitioner, right? It's always the ones that want to tinker and have that critical thinking and are inquisitive. And we're always looking at folks that, uh, um, you know, just have that desire to want to know more. Um, and it's a huge, huge value add, especially when you're, you know, you've read, you know, millions, probably thousands of resumes in your career, right? Yeah, everybody's smart. Everyone's got certs, right? But how do you differentiate? And I think what you just keyed on is a really big uh, quality or big qualities that we, uh, you know, I think make people successful in this space. Tell, tell me, tell me about some of the you know your the your your research from the past. Like, what were the things that you loved that you were working on the most uh, back in the day? And then compare that to what's going on today and, and what your interests are. Certainly. So I spent a lot of time in the digital forensics and, and malware reverse engineering space in, in the past, recent past. And uh, I collected about 4 million pieces of malware, various flavors and sizes, uh, and spent a fair amount of time doing research in pulling those apart and trying to understand uh, what are the fundamental attributes of malicious files and, and providing what I what I believe to be some foundational research in that space. Part of it was statistical analysis. Part of it was uh, reverse engineering and looking at unique code structures. And I was able to publish some interesting papers. Well, at least I, I heard they were interesting. And uh, <laughs> uh, and what I understand is they some of that research has made its way into modern AV solutions and uh, and in some of the prevention products. So that to me gets me going when I don't necessarily need to be headlines, but when my research is at least a stepping stone to something great, kind of in the bibliography, even in another paper. So I had several incidents where my research made it in that space, whether it be the malicious file analysis work, uh, looking at malware reverse engineering, or looking at some of the uh, digital forensics of emerging platforms. I did some work in that space. And uh, um, that's, that was kind of my past, but then I kind of pivoted recently, uh, into, into some more modern topics like AI and robotic systems. That's where I currently interest lies. So where, where are you seeing that? Where's that going to take us, right? If you look down the road and you'd see the research you're doing, um, wh where's that research you think going to take us in five, you know, 10 years? Wow. So it depends on who you're reading, uh, and what you believe about the future of AI. You know, there's, you know, everything from 
it's going to become sentient and it's going to take over the world to it's completely just marketing BS. You know, people have a varying view and it's always somewhere in the middle. I do think it's fairly substantial and it's pervasive today uh, in that AI has found its way into helping make decisions in most major areas of, of corporations, transportations, even government. And it is growing because it is effective. Uh, and so one of the things that I'm focused on, because p- immediately when I start talking about using, you know, cybersecurity and AI, they, they start, everyone immediately says, oh, it's, I've seen this out on the RSA show floor. Every vendor says they have AI in their product. That's not what I'm talking about, Andy. <laughs> Um, Thank goodness. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty funny. Actually, what I'm more interested in is that we're embracing this technology, but we haven't figured out how to secure it yet, I feel. And that's the age-old problem that we keep learning in security. We talked about cloud a moment ago. In AI, there are things that we haven't spent enough time on uh, once we get dependence on these systems, what does an attack against AI system look like? What does it mean to, to respond to an, a, a system, an AI system that may have been subject to a cyber attack? Those are some high level questions, but kind of driving it down to the next level, once the uh, stock trading is, is determined by an AI system and it's based on a learning set, then I could theorize that a a successful attack would be an attacker that gains access to the learning interface on that system and injects um, erroneous learning sets to deviate what the learned patterns are in that system. That would be an AI style attack. What does it, you know, so what I'm doing is part program building out a complete cybersecurity framework to say, what are the things, the practices you should be putting in place to protect these systems from attack? And then some of the technology spaces. What does a, what does an, a learning set injection attack look like? Let's theorize it. What does it look like? How do you detect it? And I'm working on building some systems that can detect those styles of attacks. So that's one area. The other area is on responding to it. So if you have... I know, Andy, you had a great forensic, you have a great forensic background. So if someone says, I think someone may have uh, hacked my database, uh, what, would you, I mean, what would you do if, some, if you think someone's database server was compromised and they need to know, did someone, you know, manipulate that data? What would you do to that system? I wouldn't want to go to court and that, with that answer. Yeah. So yes. So when you talk about in the AI system realm, let's talk about data represented in neural networks. So it's not logical now where you have, I have this row in this database that represents this piece of knowledge or these five tables. No, knowledge is represented in a distributed fashion throughout, the, throughout this entire knowledge system in maybe these AI, you know, neural network nodes or so forth. So how would you do digital forensics on a neural network? Yeah. You, you can't create a forensic image of it and make heads or tails out of it. How do you unravel knowledge out of the system in a way that's procedural enough to do a forensic analysis of it? And so that's something else that I'm working on trying to understand and put some uh, yeah, practices and technology around it. Fascinating research, man. I love it. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're looking at it. It's a, it's the future and man, we got to really solve for it fast. Um, because there's going to be, you know, all sorts of AI bots running around every company doing a whole bunch of things and without human intervention soon enough. Um, and practitioners aren't going to be able to deal with that. So man, I'm, I'm, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate you being here. You're one of the most humble pr- practitioners I know. Um, and man, you, you're doing so many great things for the industry and for our space. Um, and, and you, you know, you hang, you fly, you know, below the radar, man. So, um, I appreciate you coming on. Thanks for the work you're doing, and I uh, always appreciate your friendship, man. I appreciate it. Oh, likewise, Andy. I've, I always appreciate the opportunity to connect with you and the mutual respect. And you're, you likewise have done some and continue to do some amazing things in this space. So any chance I get to connect and chat with you is something I'll always take you up on. I appreciate it, brother. We'll have you back on. 
All right, folks, it's time for us to bounce up on out of here. But before I go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 